This is At Your Leisure from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks so much for being with us. Coming up, we go to school with Bleepin' Cartman, hear about the comic travails of a man in India who loves his wife over and over and over again. We'll jam with Richie Havens and learn civility for holiday travel. But first... There's a new technological innovation in holiday displays. The Associated Press reports this week that a number of churches and synagogues are installing global positioning systems chips inside nativity scenes in menorahs so they can be quickly located if they're stolen. Apparently a fair number of purloined baby Jesuses and misappropriated menorahs make it onto police blotters every year. Already this season... A baby Jesus was stolen from the First United Methodist Church of Kitanin, Pennsylvania, and replaced with a pumpkin. The Lubavitch Synagogue in Philadelphia will install a GPS on one menorah and a camera on another. The rabbi there says it's sad, but it's the reality we're faced with. A GPS chip can guide police to the pilfered figurine or menorah so they can determine if the thief is a prankster, plunderer, or bigot. Maybe even the suspicion that the three wise men may be burying a chip inside their gold, frankincense, and myrrh will be enough to deter menorah muggers and baby Jesus burglars. In other words, so be good for goodness sakes. Who were the leading authorities on everything politically incorrect? Why, Cartman, Kyle, Stan, and Kenny, the foul-mouthed fourth graders from the TV show South Park. And they finally made it to college, at least as the subject of a new class, and... They will respect their authority. <laughs> That's Cartman. Brian Dunphy is an adjunct professor at Brooklyn College, and this, uh, this semester he's been teaching South Park and political correctness. He joins us from New York. Professor Dunphy, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. Great to be here. What do you think of my imitation? It's, uh, it needs work. It definitely <laughs> needs work, to be honest. Let me ask you the high hard one first. Is this, is this just a gimmick to get college students to go to class? Yeah, why not? Uh, if that's going to work, you know, get them attending. That's always been a problem, getting students to attend. It's actually not a gimmick. I found through teaching over the last four or five years that the real way to reach students of this age group is to relate to them as best as possible. They relate to humor. They relate to political correctness because they're so aware of it and also pop culture. So why not make a class with my favorite TV show or one of my favorite TV shows and it works. Kids like to be entertained while they're being taught. Do students watch South Park for homework? It's really not like that. South Park is the jumping off point. South Park is what gets us talking about the issues. No one wants to discuss politics and real social issues. Everyone is so afraid because we have to worry about political correctness. We have to worry about, I don't want to offend him. I don't want to offend you. So why not just get the offensive part out of the way and have a real dialogue amongst people? We did an episode called Super Best Friends where actually they drew the Prophet Muhammad to no complaints from anybody, but this was also 10 years ago or so. The episode discussed religious pluralism, how every religion is good in its own way and each one learns from the other. It's Jesus. What's he doing here? My children, it is time for you to go home and stop following this false prophet. You should be using your money and time for other things. These are simple magic tricks. His magic is interesting, but will it put food on your table? Feeding the hungry, now that is a miracle. And they're preaching tolerance and religious tolerance. 
and they're going against any type of extremism. Do any students get offended? There's been some moments where I've definitely taken it over the line in what I'm trying to get them to think of, but I think that from the beginning, if they weren't offended then, they're not going to be offended later. And then as the episode, as the season went on, we started discussing social issues. Mm-hmm. So we would discuss euthanasia, assisted suicide, one of my favorite episodes, the Best Friends Forever episode, which has to do with the Terry Schiavo incident. And it was being done as the Terry Schiavo scenario was unfolding. I don't know if it's right to keep Kenny alive on that machine. I, I just, I don't know what he would want. Yeah, the lawyer lost that page. Oh, I just remembered. Kenny told me this one time that he wouldn't want to be kept alive by a feeding tube. He did? When? Um, it was, um, this one time. Once everyone started seeing what the messages were, they're offending the left and the right because they're right in the center, pointing and laughing at each of them. When you came up with this idea for a class that, that begins with South Park as its jumping-off point, did, did the administration say, oh, great, we've been waiting for someone to, to build a class around this TV series so many people find offensive? Uh, my boss, uh, Dr. George Rodman, he's the chair of the TV and radio department, when I presented it to him, he was he was so excited. Here was an opportunity for us to bring in a way that we want to teach them, which is to examine text critically. It's no different than an English class dissecting The Great Gatsby, except one uses foul-mouthed humor. The other one uses wonderful prose. Brian Dunphy, adjunct professor of media studies at Brooklyn College. He's just finished his first semester teaching South Park and political correctness. Well, Professor Dunphy, thanks so much. No problem. It was my pleasure. Stephen Levitt's best-selling book, Freakonomics, revitalized economics by explaining how economic principles affect our daily lives. Well, with the economy so prominent in our lives today, we wanted to turn to Professor Levitt of the University of Chicago for his reflections now. Stephen Levitt joins us from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. No, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Scott. A lot of the the undercurrent of Freakonomics is the whole idea of, of perception versus reality. And I wonder if if you see any of that at play now. For example, if you take a look at proposed bailouts or, or consumer spending, certainly during this holiday time, or, or certainly any plans that are afoot for the U.S. auto industry. What makes this time different, I think, than almost any other economic crisis we've faced is that virtually every American feels a lot poorer today than they felt a year ago. So it didn't used to be that so many people invested in the stock market. So if the stock market went down, well, that didn't matter to most people because they didn't have a lot of financial wealth. Housing prices have never gone down the way they're going down now. And so almost anyone who owns a home feels poor in that regard. It used to be that recessions were mostly things that hit, hit relatively poor people, that unemployment would go up, the people who were on the margin would lose their jobs, but affluent people wouldn't feel it. But in today's world, everybody feels poor. And I think, in fact, they are poor. So this is one case where really the perceptions of wealth and the realities are are there. And the right thing to do if you're poorer than you were a year ago is probably to spend less money and to hunker down and and be cautious. So that is the challenge Mm -hmm. to government policymakers. So what, what do you do when the right thing for everyone in the economy to do is to hunker down? That may have bad macroeconomic effects. Bailouts typically are not the right thing to do. That what governments should be in the business 
of doing is helping markets function, that the market's done pretty well for us over the last 50, 100 years. By the market, I don't mean the stock market. I mean the function of the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. And part of capitalism is that when people are producing products that people don't want or when executives are making bad decisions that make their company no longer viable, that those companies go by the wayside. But but you know the practical hazard in that, because all of that would have to be accomplished by politicians. And politicians are very sensitive to the fact that when you let an industry like that, huge industry like that, slip into bankruptcy, it, it's in fact not the executives that may have made bad decisions who suffer, but the people on the line. And politically, that just becomes untenable. I mean, there's no question that politics trumps <coughs> economics when it comes to, the, to what governments do. And so I think the role of the economist, someone like me who's not accountable to anyone, is to say what I think, you know, what economic wisdom tells you, mm-hmm. even knowing that it will never happen because the politics are, are, are too dicey. But ultimately, I think we will not have a car industry in Detroit if things don't change. Um, it may just be that the United States shouldn't be making cars, that we're better at, at doing other things relative to, to the Chinese or the Japanese. And it's it, the nature of the modern economy is change and, and the ability to be adaptable to change. And I think it's very dangerous if we get locked into the past. I mean, if you look at the, the initial stocks, the companies that made up the, the Dow Jones when it was started back in the 18, I don't know, 1880s, only one company, I think GE is the only company that's still around uh, in the same form that it was 100 years ago. This sort of creative destruction is the nature of, of capitalism. Yeah. And while politicians will fight it, I think ultimately economic forces are stronger than political forces. What do you notice as you look over the economic landscape of the country? The macro economy is sort of like the weather. We, we have complex models that more or less can predict the weather a day or two out, but we're terrible at predicting weather a week or two out. And, and yeah. the macro economy is on the same order of complexity as, as is the global climate. And so, so economists are really stabbing in the dark a lot when we try and say what will happen. I think you wouldn't want to believe any any economist, individual economist forecast about what will happen in the future. But I think we what we are better at is thinking about the past and what's happened in the past and how we've gotten to where we are today. For instance, with the financial crisis, that we can look back mm-hmm. and say, how, how did all of these big investment banks come to the brink of, of disaster? And I think there we're back to individual behavior, and and what what's really remarkable is the the, the people who, who man these in, investment banks are incredibly smart, and yet they made these these fundamental errors it seems in the calculations of their models, in not recognizing that housing prices had gone up fifty or sixty percent in five or five years, mm-hmm. that they might just go down pretty quickly as well, and and took these huge bets that we're going to destroy the company if if housing prices reversed. There are any questions that aren't you notice aren't being asked now that maybe you'd like to raise? It may simply just be a fact of life that that what we were living over the last ten years of boom was somewhat of an illusion, and and we may actually have to scale back our our expectations and think that indeed the future may not be as rosy. I think people are approaching the current economic situation as if it's cyclical. It may actually be something more fundamental. I think every economist believes that in the long run. The performance of the economy has to do not with factors about demand and what people want to buy exactly, but in our ability to produce, that we are as rich as we are as a function of whether or not we are making goods and services that other people are willing to pay for. And ultimately, I think that the risk we have in this downturn is that the government ends up putting impediments in the way 
of actually making American manufacturing, American services as, as productive as they possibly could be. So if I had one word of advice to the Obama administration, it would be to focus on how we can not put in short-run government fixes, which will eventually become long-run government entitlement programs that will get in the way of making America productive, but instead think about what can make America productive. And I, and I think to the extent that this investments in infrastructure are a good attempt to try and build in things which will make us productive in the long run, as well as create jobs in the short run. Always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Scott. Stephen Levitt, professor of economics at the University of Chicago and the author and inventor of Freakonomics speaking from WBEZ in Chicago. Nothing happens in the Ahuja family in small doses. They live in one of the most crowded cities in the world, New Delhi. They have 13 children, in a time when modern middle-class couples try to stop at two. Rakesh Ahuja, the patriarch, is a member of parliament and director of urban planning in a chaotic urban landscape, and feels suppressed by a vast, choking bureaucracy. His son, Arjun, tries to escape the clatter and the clutter of his life with head-banging rock music. Every day seems to bring a new breaking point, and sometimes a new understanding. Family Planning is the title of the debut novel by Karen Mahajan, who now lives in Park Slope, Brooklyn. But he grew up in New Delhi and joins us from our studios in New York. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Could you delicately explain why Rakesh Ahuja and his wife have 13 children? <laughs> I'll try to be as delicate as I can, or rather I'll be as direct as I can, which is to say that Mr. Ahuja is only attracted to his wife when she's pregnant and so has you know, developed this really unhealthy obsession with having more and more children, not just because he loves children, but because he wants to you know, uh, be attracted to his wife. Um, so that's the primary reason he has 13 children. Um, any debut novel uh, prompts the question as to, to what degree is it autobiographical. Uh, would you like to clear that up for us? Absolutely. I would love to clear that up for you. Um, it isn't very autobiographical at all, surprisingly. I only have one younger sibling, but I was fascinated with the idea of what a large family would be like and the internal politics of such a family, and you know, especially played out against the larger politics of the city of New Delhi. Um, and as for the characters themselves, Arjun is a 16-year-old character who's into rock music. I would say that part is autobiographical, but he's much more of an interesting, sulky, uh, angsty character than I ever was. I was extremely boring, and you know, I still hope to be. Do I have this right? You, uh, you, you learned the narrative form by writing a cricket blog? Yeah, actually, it was in a time before blogs, uh, if if such a time existed, really. Um, I, when I was about 13 years old, my brother and I started a cricket website, uh, which you know covered the motions of the Indian cricket team. And we became very serious about it, and it became one of the largest Indian cricket sites in the country at the time. Um, but yes, I did learn how to write when I was working on that website. Now, tell us how, how, how writing about cricket games that by and large you never saw might have affected <laughs> your, your, your writing style or at least developing your writing muscles. Um, I think my writing style very much was a form of gossip, I would say. You know, I think uh, I would pick up on what other people were saying about games. Um, I would obviously form some of my own opinions, but really my interest was in listening to how people were responding to cricket as a social form. And I think the novel essentially is an excellent um, standardized form of gossip. And I hope, you know, that I've written 280 pages of really naughty gossip about the individuals. <laughs> now, you began writing this when you were a student at Stanford, I gather. 
That's correct. I ended up writing the first 20 pages of the book mm-hmm. um, in a class. And what was there about the novel that attracted you? You know, I think more than any other form right now, the novel allows you to get really deep and internal um, into the lives of various characters and what you know, they, how their insecurities play out in their heads, how they fantasize about various things. And so for me, that was really what I wished to do. And also, I think, to reveal to a degree how people have a tendency to abstract each other. So in this novel, you have Mr. Ahuja, who's abstractly thinking about his pregnant wife without really understanding her. And so you have three or four different consciousnesses, if that's a word, uh, playing out against each other in a way that I think the novel is best suited for. Um, is it possible for is it possible for a father to love all 13 children equally? You know, that's a really good question and one that I, I thought about a lot while I was writing the book. And I would say... The answer is actually no, but I think the father can pretend to love all 13 children by, you know, you know, just peppering in a few details about his children's life, you know, flattering each of his children one by one. And I think that's what Mr. Well, he, but he's does. a politician, too, so he knows how to do that. But. Precisely. So he knows how to, you know, just remember one or two details about each of his kids. Um, hopefully he can remember their names. And... Um, to use that to get to a point where the children think they're all equally loved and are fighting for his affection. You, I gather you did a lot of research into urban planning to make Mr. Ahuja's character plausible. Yeah, it was obsessive. Um, I read, you know, hundreds of transcripts of parliamentary discussions. I read, you know, all sorts of about construction materials, which was intensely boring, and at one point, you know, formed an entire chapter, which I was smart enough to finally <laughs> remove. And... I also went and talked to a few members of parliament in India, which was fascinating because you realize that you realize what theater Indian politics, not just urban planning, but Indian politics is that these are incredibly smart, talented people who are aware that they're caricaturing themselves. And I think um, that was one of the big revelations for me Mm -hmm. in doing my research. And how are you living in New York? May, May I ask, this is your first novel. Are you able to support yourself as a writer? I was able to support myself as a writer for a while, um, and I was writing full time. But I, I think, I'm too young at this point to actually stay to want to have to stay at home and just you know toil away in silence. I really like being among people. And then, after about six months of trying to write full time and you know driving myself nuts, I basically decided to take up a full time job, which has been very productive because. One, I work in a field I like very much, which is urban planning, actually, which is an interest I developed while um, writing the book. And I tend to write in the evenings and on the weekends, which means that I really don't have a social life or friends. (laughs) Oh. Um, You've started your next novel? I have indeed. (laughs) And and without asking too many questions, is is it set in India or America? You know, it's actually set in a sort of weird hybrid of the two places. And uh, this is something that happened to me while writing. I was, you know, it seemed for a while they would be set in the Delhi that I knew. And um, it occurred to me that my very much my own headspace at this moment, you know, having grown up in India, but having come for college to the U.S. and spent many of my formative years here, that my own headspace was very much between the two places. And given the fact that India is really becoming very Western in certain ways, urban India in any case, it seemed like an interesting experiment to try. So we'll see how far I get with that hybrid and whether anyone wants to read about it. But I'm enjoying it at the moment. Mr. Mahajan, thanks so much. 
Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Karan Mohajan, author of the new novel, Family Planning, speaking with us from New York. Havens is the man who opened Woodstock. He hasn't stopped performing since. Or inspiring, he's just released his 30th album, Nobody Left a Crown. If I could tell the story What secrets I would tell Of those who've gone to glory That's If I from this new CD. Richie Havens joins us from New York. Mr. Havens, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, really. Can I get you to talk about those early years? You were, as I understand it, what you were you were a performing poet in Greenwich Village. Yes, I actually um, was sort of discovered. Uh, a friend of mine and I, who used to sing doo-wop in Brooklyn together, <laughs> found out that the... Uh, word that the big guys in the neighborhood were calling us, which was beatnik, we had no clue what it was, you know? So we went to Manhattan to see what a beatnik was and found out it was us. <laughs> I, I understand, like, arguably the most prominent beatnik of all was influential in getting you to, to start a career in music, Actually, Alan Ginsberg. Yes, I, I used to come from Brooklyn, you know, we'd sit in the gaslight and, all and listen. Mm-hmm. And he used to come over and look at our two books we had on the table, and finally he said, so it's, what's in those books? And we said, poetry, you know? He says, get up there. So I ended up on stage in the gaslight. Uh, we used to see them just about every night. Kerouac was there, and uh, quite a few guys. I remember, this is how I met uh, Wavy Gravy, actually. <laughs> but he, he had a different name then. <laughs> Let's listen a little bit to Nobody Left a Crown. When our politicians were on good guys Nobody left a crown. What are we meant to infer from that title? Well, with the, t- the song underneath that title, we're sort of guided to question certain things uh, about our state of community. Out of working so hard to put someone in who is the crown for uh, this uh, short four-year period of time, we've been disappointed each time around. So we figured, well, we need to do our own thinking, our own speaking out. Home on the range With a fear In the antidote Play We're seldom Heard An encouraging word And no leaders Do nothing All day feel any differently about that title given events of the past few weeks? Well, I'll tell you, that title was originally recorded in 1968, and it referred to that time and what was going on in that time. And lo and behold, it's back again. 
Can I ask you a Woodstock question? Absolutely. <laughs> Is it true you were the first act because very few other people could get there because the crush of traffic was so great? It sort of clogged itself up the first day of the uh, concerts. And we got in there about 6 in the morning, and here we are still sitting here at 3.30 in the afternoon, so something's wrong. And it was the roads were <laughs> closed, and no one could get there, actually. So I hear this loud noise in the parking lot out back of the, the hotel they asked us to come to. It's a glass bubble helicopter. I thought it was a news guy. It was a farmer who owned the copter and, and said, sure, I'll take some people over, and we happened to be the first... <laughs> Mr. Havens, I know you've got a uh, colleague in there, Walter mm-hmm. Parks. Yes. You want to perform a song for us? Uh, way Down Deep? Thank you so much, Mr. Havens. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> now, is it, is it true at your concerts? You know the first and last songs you're going to play, but you don't plan the rest in advance? Exactly. <laughs> and, and what's the idea there? 
Well, the idea there is for me never to have to go on a stage and play the same set over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. You know, it's interesting because many times people have come up to me after uh, singing some songs and they'd say, Richie, do you know what you did? I'd say, what? And they'd go, I wrote these songs down for you to sing and you sang them all in a row. But that's the kind of communication happens, you know. It's like if you let the audience lead, then you are the audience self. Mr. Havens, um, can you play us out on a song? Sure. How about um, Here Comes the Sun? Richie Havens, uh, thanks also, by the way, to Walter Parks, who joined him on the guitar. The new release is called Nobody Left to Crown. Forms another song for us as well, and to hear that and learn more about Nobody Left to Crown, you can go to www.npr.org slash music. Little darling, seems like a long, long, lonely winter. Little darling, seems like so many years since it's been there. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. Little dog, seems like the ice is surely melting. Little dog. Here comes the sun, and I say, it's all right.